Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be in Luke 22, verses 24 through 38. Now, last week we studied Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples, but we kind of left the dinner party early, uh, right after the meal was finished. We didn't stick around for after-dinner fellowship. So this week we return to the upper room and pick up where we left off. We drop in to examine the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples after the dinner was finished. So please follow along as I begin reading in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who stood by me in trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, look out, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. He also said to them, when I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, but now whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag. And whoever does not have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. That is enough, he told them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray as we come to your word this morning that you would help us behold wondrous things from your word. It would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, I pray that I would speak what is true and right and according to your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Around 10 years ago or so, long before I became a pastor, I attended a small business seminar for young business leaders, young aspiring business leaders in my hometown. The speaker at this seminar was the CEO of Chick-fil-A, which is a large, large fast food restaurant in the United States. So think something like McDonald's, just much better. Uh, one of the things that Chick-fil-A is most famous for is being closed on Sundays. The founder of the company was a committed Christian, and so he required all Chick-fil-A restaurants to be closed on Sunday to both honor the Lord and allow his employees to have a day of rest and a day where they could attend church. The company is known for trying to operate according to biblical principles. And so it was the CEO of Chick-fil-A, the son of the original founder, who came to speak at the seminar. Now, to be honest, I don't remember anything he said. But what I do remember is that at some point during his presentation, he stopped talking, 
he walked over to one of the young men in the audience. He knelt down on the floor in front of this young man, and he began to shine his shoes. He spent the next few minutes shining this young man's shoes. So here was the CEO of one of the largest restaurant chains in the United States, shining the shoes of some young person that he did not even know. He then passed out shoe shining equipment to, to all the rest of us and told us to turn to our neighbor and to shine their shoes. Why did the CEO do this? Why did he do this? Well, he was trying to teach us young, aspiring business leaders the importance of the biblical principle of servant leadership. He was saying that this is the way that Chick-fil-A is sought to operate. He was trying to provide a real-life illustration of Jesus' teaching from our verses this morning. Look again at verse 26. Whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. Well, like a parent who might give their child final instructions before that child moves out of the house to live on his own, Jesus is giving his disciples here some final instructions before his arrest. He was preparing them for their role as apostles and leaders of the church. Now, Jesus sought to, to teach them how they were to lead. He reminded them of their need to rely on him and his strength, and he sought to prepare them for the difficulties that were to come. So the main idea of this text, and therefore this sermon, is this. Serve others in the strength of the Lord as you face life's trials. Serve others in the strength of the Lord as you face life's trials. I have three points to help us consider that idea. First, humbly serve. We're going to see that in verses 24 through 30. Second, depend on the Lord. Verses 31 through 34. And then third, be prepared for trials. Verses 35 through 38. You can also find that outline in the back of your bulletin. Well, first, humbly serve. Now look back at verse 23 for a moment, the verse that we ended our study on last week. Uh, dinner ended with the disciples arguing about who would betray Jesus. But as we see in verse 24, that quickly turned into an argument about which one of them was the greatest. So, hey, which of us is going to betray Jesus now? Which one of us is the greatest? Now, Jesus had just finished teaching his disciples that his body would be broken for them. His blood would be shed for them. He had just instituted the Lord's Supper, which, to which was to remind them of his sacrifice and their unity together. But it doesn't, it doesn't seem like they had fully understood Jesus' teaching yet. They didn't fully understand the nature of Jesus' service or the nature of Jesus' sacrifice, the unity that Jesus spoke of in the Lord's Supper did not yet mark their lives together. Instead, they're arguing about who of them is the greatest. The lesson the disciples seem to have taken away from the Last Supper to this point was, we must be pretty great if Jesus chose to eat this meal with us. So Jesus took the opportunity to teach them that greatness in God's kingdom is much different than greatness in the world. He taught them that leadership in God's kingdom is to look much different than leadership in the world. So look at verse 25. Jesus said, The kings of the Gentiles 
lord it over them or lord their authority over them. And those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. Jesus' point in that verse is that his followers must exercise authority differently than the world exercises authority. In the world's value system, people use authority to oppress others, to exploit them for their own personal gain. People use the power that they have to, to elevate themselves and to keep others down. They lord their authority over others. They, they seek to, to dominate. To be great in the eyes of the world is to have others serve you. And Jesus' comments about benefactors may seem a little confusing. It could also be translated, those who call themselves benefactors. Now, a benefactor is simply someone who provides help to another, usually financial help. So Jesus' point was that even those who are called benefactors or who call themselves benefactors, well, they often use their financial advantages as a tool to exploit others and to maintain their own position. So maybe think of a family that hires house help here in the UAE. The family that hires house help, the, the sponsor, well, they might be called benefactors. They're providing a salary and, a, and accommodations after all. But how easy it is to exploit that system for their own personal gain. They know that individual they've hired is dependent on the salary they provide. So they might threaten to fire them if they don't perform additional duties or work for less pay than was originally promised. They might use their financial advantages to control and exploit, all the while calling themselves benefactors because they're providing a salary at all. But friends, what you must understand is that this temptation to misuse power and authority is not just a problem for other people. It's not just a problem for like the people out there. It's a temptation for all of us. It's a temptation whether we have great authority or whether we have very little authority. Well, in his book titled Authority, the author Jonathan Lehman writes this, there is an oppressor in all of us. We want power that we do not deserve, and we use the power we possess at the expense of others. If you do not know that about yourself, you do not yet know Jesus. His point is that those who know Jesus know they are sinners. They know the temptations of the flesh. They know then that they will be tempted to use any little bit of authority or power they have to benefit themselves at the expense of others. The first step in not doing that is realizing you're tempted to do it. So left unchecked, the older brother will become a tyrant to his younger siblings. We're tempted to oppress others. It is the reality of our, of our sinful natures. If you know Jesus, you know this. But Jesus said it is not to be that way among his people. Verse 26. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. So again, to be great in the eyes of the world is to be served. But to be great, 
To be great in the kingdom of God is to serve others instead. Those who are great in God's eyes are those who view themselves as the youngest. So in many of your cultures, it's not so much true in American culture, but in many of your cultures, there's great honor and respect given to those who are older. Well, that's a good thing. But what Jesus is saying here is that those who are in positions of leadership or those who are even older, they should not view themselves as those who are owed respect and honor, but as those who owe respect and honor to others. Those who lead are to see themselves like the ones serving. In other words, those who have positions of, of power and authority are to use their authority to benefit others, not themselves. They're to lift others up, not themselves. Well, this is the lesson that the CEO of Chick-fil-A was trying to teach us young, aspiring business leaders that, that morning at that business seminar. He took time to model what it looked like for someone in authority, someone with a great power to serve others. He did it by shining shoes. In the same way that CEO gave us an example of what it looks like to serve others, so Jesus is to be our example in this type of service. Jesus is to be our example in this type of leadership. We're to follow the example of our Savior. So look at verse 27. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now, naturally, we understand that the one who sits at the table and is served by another is greater. The sheikh has people serve his meals, not the other way around. But what did Jesus do at the Last Supper? He served the bread and the wine to his disciples. In the Gospel of John, we also learn that he washed the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. Jesus' whole ministry was marked by service. He healed others. He ministered to others. Even when he was exhausted, he took time to speak with the crowds and to minister to the crowds. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Beloved, the true depth of Jesus' service was seen at the cross. He gave up the glory of heaven to come to earth and live among us. He gave his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. He came to suffer for us. He came to die for our salvation. Jesus, the one with all authority, the one by whom and through whom and for whom all things were created, well, he used his power He used his authority to serve and to save. He used his authority to lift up us poor and needy sinners. Now, it would be a mistake to think that Jesus is condemning any and all authority here. It would be a mistake to think that Jesus is saying that it is wrong to be in a position of authority or to exercise authority over someone else. If you look back over the life of Jesus, it is very clear that he led, he commanded, he exercised authority. Having authority 
and exercising authority are not inherently bad things. They are part of God's good creation. It's part of the creation mandate to have dominion over the earth. Jesus is not opposed to authority. He is opposed to the misuse of authority. Jesus used his authority to serve others. And brothers and sisters, so should we. Now, I'm not sure if any of you have seen the movie Cool Runnings. It is a comedy that is very, very loosely based on the true story of the first Olympic bobsled team from Jamaica. Now, if you do not know what a bobsled is, which I'm guessing a few of you do not, it is one of those big metal sleds that carry four people in it. It's a big metal sled, four people cram into it, and then they go hurtling down an ice-covered track at like 150 kilometers an hour. It is a very dangerous sport. Well, early on in this movie, the coach of the Jamaican bobsled team begins assigning each member of the team a specific position in the bobsled. Like, your driver, your brake man, you sit in the middle, etc. Well, there's one member of the team who really wants to be the driver and steer the sled because the driver gets most of the glory and attention. He's the, the leader of the team. He's steering the sled. Uh, he thinks, this man thinks he deserves that position. But the coach disagrees. So they begin to argue. But the coach tells him this. The driver has to work harder than anyone. He is the first to show up and the last to leave. A driver must remain focused 100% at all times. Not only is he responsible for knowing every inch of every course he races, he is also responsible for the lives of the other three people in his sled. The coach then turned to this man and asked, do you want that responsibility? Well, humbled, the man admits that he does not want that responsibility. He decides that he does not want to be the driver after all. Well, friends, what the coach said about the responsibility of the driver is a great illustration of what biblical leadership should look like. To again quote Jonathan Lehman, good authority is profoundly costly, usually involving the sacrifice of everything. It requires the end of personal desires. That is because authority that is used well is used to bless others and lift others up. Those who exercise authority well follow the example of Jesus and sacrifice themselves for the good of others. They serve. It's the manager that invests himself in seeing his employees train so that they might get a better job in the future. So, beloved, take a moment to think of where the Lord has given you authority. No matter how great, no matter how small. Maybe you have authority as a parent, maybe as a husband, maybe as a teacher, maybe you're the manager at your workplace, maybe you have influence uh, among your friends. Kids, maybe you are an older brother or sister with some authority over your siblings. Maybe you're just occasionally given a project at work that requires responsibility. Well, the question that this passage confronts you with is how do you use the authority that you have been given? Do you use it to bless others and control, or bless yourself, excuse me, do you use it to bless yourself and control others? 
Or do you use it to bless and serve others? Do you follow the the world's example? Or do you follow Jesus' example? And if you desire more authority than you currently have, well, why? If you desire a greater power, why? Kids, why do you want to be in charge? Why do you want to be an adult? Is it to get what you want? Or is it because you want to use that additional power and authority to serve others? Beloved, take time after church to evaluate your life. What would it look like in your own life to sacrifice for the good of others? Think about where the Lord has placed you in your life and ask what would it look like in your life to sacrifice for the good of others? to bless others, to serve others, to lift them up with any influence or power and authority that the Lord has given you. But church, we should also note that Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. The men who would be the leaders of the early church. And so the most direct application of of Jesus' words here to those in pastoral ministry, the elders of the church, their words to me, the words to Pastor Ben. Now, there can be a, a danger in any leadership to include pastoral ministry. So there can be a danger in, in viewing pastoral ministry, of viewing the church as your own personal kingdom to rule over. There can be a danger to think that everyone else should serve you. Now, pastors who give in to this temptation do not allow themselves to ever be criticized or corrected. They say things like, touch not God's anointed, if a church member ever offers a word of correction. They seek to put themselves on a pedestal and have others serve them, surround themselves with people who are going to serve them. They make it clear that they are more important than everyone else. But church, faithful pastoral ministry is first and foremost a ministry of service to others. The the call of pastoral ministry from the Bible's perspective is to labor and work for the spiritual good of others. It is to sacrifice on behalf of others. It is to shepherd. So brothers and sisters, if you ever move on from Emmanuel, I pray that you would look for a church where the pastors serve the flock and not the other way around. And I ask that you pray for, for Pastor Ben and that you pray for me that we will faithfully serve and shepherd the church in this way. Pray that we would be good examples of servant leaders. Now look, I, I'm, I'm sure, and I'm not just saying this, that we often fail in this. But we would desire your prayers that we would serve in this way. That we would lead in this way. And church, I want you to know that truly my prayer for you, our prayer for you, is that you grow in spiritual maturity that you grow in the knowledge of the Lord, that you grow in faith, that you grow in love. I want to serve and I want to work to see you all presented mature in Christ on the last day. Brothers and sisters, that is the goal of faithful pastoral ministry, to serve and labor to see others presented mature in Christ. Well, church, what is it that motivates this kind of leadership? What should motivate us to sacrificially serve others in whatever position the Lord has placed us in? Well, as we've already seen, it's the example of your Savior who served you by suffering in your place on the cross. 
But Jesus gives another reason in verses 28 through 30. It is the future glory and future reward laid up for those who faithfully follow Jesus. Although the disciples had just been fighting over who would be the greatest, Jesus nevertheless praises them for the ways that they had had remained faithful to him over their years together. Now, along with Jesus, they had endured opposition and hardship. And yet, here they were, still with him. And so Jesus encouraged them with the reward laid up for them in heaven. He encouraged them that they would one day share in his heavenly kingdom, and they would share in his heavenly rule. Beloved, you should rejoice and take heart and be encouraged by these verses, because God grants a place in his kingdom to those who do not seek a kingdom for themselves on earth. God promises a seat at his table to those who do not seek to be served, but who serve others instead. One day they will sit at the table of the Lord feasting. He promises glory and reward to those who do not seek a throne on earth, but who sacrifice their own glory and honor for the good of others. So, beloved, ask yourself, what is that What is it that you desire? Is it the praise and glory that comes from men? Or is it the praise and glory that comes from God? How is it that we could take joy in in humbly serving others? How is it that we could take joy in in following this example of, of Jesus? How can we resist the temptation to misuse our authority? It's by looking to the reward by looking to the example of Jesus. But as we'll see in the next point of our sermon, it's by relying on the strength of the Lord. It's by relying on the strength of the Lord. So that takes us to point two of our sermon. Depend on the Lord. Depend on the Lord. Starting in verse 31, Jesus moves from speaking to all of his disciples to speaking to Peter directly. Jesus warned that Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And now actually the word you in verse 31 is plural. It is better translated you all. So Jesus is really warning that Satan has asked to sift all of the disciples. But he then addresses Peter specifically as something of a representative of all of the disciples. And of course is the one who would go on to deny Jesus. So in this context... To sift means to test or to to try. You sift flour, the pure flour comes out at the bottom. Satan wants to sift and to test Peter and the disciples. When Satan tested Job, his goal was to take everything away from him so that Job would no longer fear the Lord. This was his same goal with the disciples. He wanted them to lose their fear of the Lord. For their faith in the Lord to be destroyed. Well, Peter and all the disciples would be tested when very shortly, that very night, Jesus would be arrested. And then the next day, put to death. Would Peter remain loyal to Jesus when the public opposition increased? Would the disciples remain faithful when the cost of following Jesus increased? Jesus' arrest and death would put them to the test. Just like our own trials and suffering, brothers and sisters, put our faith to the test. Will we remain faithful when following Jesus brings hardship 
rather than comfort, and opposition rather than honor. But you must see that though this testing or sifting would come from Satan's hand, it was again under the sovereign hand of God. Just like Job's trials were under the sovereign hand of God, so were Peter's and the disciples. What Satan intended for evil, God intended for good. What Satan intended to ruin the faith of of Peter and the disciples, the Lord intended to strengthen their faith. God intended this time of trial for Peter and the disciples to teach them to rely on him. Church, this is one of the lessons that we need to learn in our own suffering, our own trials. We need to learn to rely on the Lord because it is only by the Lord's strength that we can faithfully endure. It is only by the Lord's strength that we will endure to the end. So right after Jesus warned Peter that this time of testing and trial was coming, he told Peter that he would pray, Jesus would pray for Peter, that his faith would not fail. But notice Peter's reaction in verse 33. Even as Jesus says that he is praying this for Peter, Peter says, it's okay, I'm good. I have it under control. No trial is going to shake my faith. I am ready, Jesus, to follow you even to prison or to death. Brothers and sisters, how quick we can be to believe that we can live the Christian life on our own, that we can live it in our own strength, that time in prayer and God's word aren't really that important. But Jesus is pointing us here to the importance of depending on him. Jesus responds to Peter's claim by giving him a reality check. He said, you know what, Peter, actually what's really going to happen is that you're going to deny me three times before this day is even done. Your strength is not sufficient. You need my strength. But we do have to ask, does that mean that Jesus' prayer for Peter failed? Jesus prayed that his faith would not fail, but Peter denied him three times. Was Jesus' prayer ineffective? Well, friends, the emphatic answer to that question is no. Jesus knew, even as he said this, that Peter would deny him. I mean, even as Jesus prayed that his faith would fail, Jesus told Peter that when, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I mean, what love from Jesus. Jesus is sitting here praying and encouraging Peter, though in just a couple hours, Peter is going to deny him three times. I mean, what grace from Jesus that he would spend time praying for Peter and encouraging Peter in the midst of that. Jesus tells him, when you have turned back, Strengthen your brothers. In other words, after you return to me, following your denial, serve others. As I am strengthening you now, you, in turn, strengthen others. Serve others. Beloved, the, the mark of faithfulness in the Christian life is not a lack of sin. We should grow to sin less, yes. But the mark of faithfulness in the Christian life is not a complete lack of sin. It is not the absence of doubt. Perfection is not the mark of a faithful Christian. The mark of faithfulness in the Christian life is to turn back to the Lord in genuine repentance when you do sin. To turn back to the Lord in genuine repentance when you do sin. In the year 1556, Thomas Cramner of England was burned at the stake for his faith. 
Now, Cramner was one of the leading figures in the Protestant Reformation in England and held an influential position as Archbishop of Canterbury. So when the very Catholic Queen Mary took the throne of England, he was arrested and he was sentenced to death. Now, before burning him at the stake, Queen Mary and her allies strongly pressured Cramner to recant or deny the faith as a way to damage the Protestant Reformation in England. Well, under much pressure, Cramner eventually did sign a document renouncing his Protestant convictions, re renouncing the faith. But that's not the end of the story. On the day of Cramner's execution, he was ordered to publicly renounce his faith, to say this out loud, again as a way to damage the Protestant Reformation in England. But when that day of his execution came, he refused. Instead, he took the opportunity to publicly repent of his earlier denial of the faith. And then when he went to the stake, he held out his right hand to be burned first, so that the hand that signed that document renouncing the faith would be burned first. In the end, Cramner turned back. His faith did not fail. And by turning back, he strengthened the faith of the other Protestant reformers in England. His courageous example encouraged them to, to persevere, to endure the opposition and hardships that they were facing. Well, this is exactly what Jesus called Peter to do when he turned back. He commanded Peter, strengthen the brothers. When Jesus restored Peter following his resurrection, you might know this story. When Jesus restores Peter following his resurrection, he commands Peter three times, feed my sheep. In other words, strengthen the brothers. Teach them. Equip them. Serve them. Your job is to strengthen them as I have strengthened you. Give them the word of God. Brothers and sisters, that's the call of pastoral ministry. It's to feed the sheep. Well, when Peter learned what it meant to rely on Jesus' strength, he was supposed to teach and encourage others to do the same. And you can just imagine Peter coming alongside of a brother who is struggling with doubt, recounting his own experience, the Lord's grace and kindness to him, and encouraging him to hold on to the faith, to endure, to not deny Jesus. And brothers and sisters, this is what we are to do for each other as well. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Beloved, before you can ever, ever humbly serve others, you must come to see your own sin. You must come to see your own weakness. You must come to see your own need for the strength of the Lord. Well, Pastor Phil Newton says it like this. Sometimes you need discouragements to stretch, test, and reinforce your trust in the Lord. Confessing his wisdom and love, even when you feel the weight of distress, it trains the heart to trust him in discouraging times. Even if your time in the word and prayer are not lively, persist in these daily disciplines. A discouraging season can ready you for other life shifts and hard times that will likely come. 
So use the present discouragement as preparation for future trials. So brothers and sisters, if you find yourself presently discouraged, do not waste it. Let it drive you to the Lord. Let it drive you to his throne of grace that you might find mercy and help in your time of need. Let it drive you to his throne of grace that you may be able to comfort others with the comfort that you yourselves receive from God. In verse 33, Peter was confident that he would go to prison or even death for the Lord. Instead, we know what happens. He denied the Lord. But we should not miss the fact that eventually Peter, in fact, did go to prison. And he did go to death for the name of Jesus. Jesus' prayer for Peter was effective. He returned to Jesus. He learned of his weakness, and he learned to depend on the Lord's strength. His present trial strengthened him for greater trials that were still to come. And he did go to prison, and he did go to death for the Lord. But he did it not in his own strength. He did it in the strength of the Lord. And so church, if you are ever to faithfully persevere in the Christian life, you must learn to depend on the Lord. In God's great kindness, he allows trials to teach us to depend on him. He brings trials to teach you that his grace is sufficient for you. And that his power is made perfect in your weakness. And so that brings us to the third and final point of the sermon. Be prepared for trials. Be prepared for trials. In the verses we just looked at in Jesus' conversation with Peter, you might say that we looked at God's side of the equation. We need his strength to persevere. 100% true. In these verses, we look at the human side of the equation, however, that we need to be prepared for the trials that come our way. So look again at verse 35. Jesus also said to them, When I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, But now whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag. And whoever does not have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. That is enough, he told them. Oh, and Jesus asked his disciples if they lacked anything when he sent them out with nothing. He's referring to a time earlier in his ministry when he sent out the 12 disciples to different towns in Israel to proclaim the kingdom of God. You can read about this in Luke chapter 9. He commanded them at that time to take nothing with them but instead to rely on the hospitality in the, of the people in the towns where they would be ministering. But in these verses, Jesus told his disciples, I'm giving you new instructions. Now the time has come to take your money bag and your traveling bag with you. Sell your robe. Buy a sword. Times have changed. Things are different. But just look at verse 37. Jesus would soon be counted among the lawless when he was arrested and tried and and sentenced to death. Jesus was warning his disciples that the opposition that he would experience, they were about to experience as well. All things were coming to fulfillment. Jesus would soon be counted among the lawless. So would they. 
Therefore, they needed to prepare for that day. They needed to prepare. They needed to be ready for the suffering and the trials that would come. Now, I do not think, I do not think Jesus is teaching his disciples that they need to be physically ready. In other words, he did not literally mean that they needed a traveling bag or they needed to go buy a sword. They were just illustrations. You don't need to run off to city center and buy a backpack if you're missing one. Instead, he was telling them that they needed to prepare themselves spiritually so that their faith would not fail. But it seems, as they so often did, that the disciples did not really understand Jesus' meaning here. In response, they tell Jesus, hey, we have two swords with us. Jesus says, that is enough. Now, what Jesus means by that statement isn't entirely clear. He could have meant that two swords is enough, like you have enough swords among you. That would kind of seem silly when he just told anyone without one to buy one, and there's more than two people there. Also, two swords not going to go very far in any battle. They're not going to stand up against any Roman garrison. So more likely, Jesus was saying something like, that is enough of this conversation. Uh, The disciples did not understand Jesus' message. They began to talk about actual swords, and so Jesus was essentially saying, enough of this foolish talk. Parents, you can probably relate. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. In fact, when Peter cuts off the high priest's servant's ear in the next passage we'll look at, Jesus rebukes him. So again, Jesus was not telling his disciples to be physically ready for trials and persecution, but rather to be spiritually ready. This is an illustration. Yes, Jesus would pray that their faith would not fail. We need the strength of the Lord. But they had a responsibility as well. They needed to prepare themselves. Well, brothers and sisters, the same is true of us. Even now, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Because we do not know what to pray for as we should, the Spirit himself intercedes for us. That's what Romans 8 says. And yet, what are we commanded to do? Walk in the Spirit. We have to actively seek to rely on the Lord. We're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And yet it is God at work in us to will and to work his good pleasure. And so how do we seek to walk by the Spirit? How do we prepare for the trials to come? Friends, one obvious way is to pray. Pray. The very act of praying is to admit our need for the Lord and our dependence on him. I mean, if the Lord couldn't help you and you don't need his help, why would you pray? To pray is to ask for his help. We can go boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. In fact, uh, just a few verses after our verses in Luke twenty-two forty-six, when Jesus and his disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells them to pray so that they may not fall into temptation. So pray. We also depend on the Lord as we abide in Christ and we abide in his word. As we meditate on the truths of scripture, as we meditate on the glories of the the gospel, we're strengthened to rely on the promises of God when difficulties and discouragements come. They nourish our faith. They give roots to our faith, a firm foundation for our faith to stand on. And we also actively depend on the Lord through the church. 
Author Ariel Wellens puts it this way. When we commit to a church community, we live imperfectly together while rejoicing in Christ's perfection. We can be vulnerable and acknowledge our need for grace rather than clinging to a mask of perfection. There, in the church, we find accountability, maturity, and fellowship. In the church, we rely on God by leaning on our brothers and sisters in Christ. We were designed for relationship, accountability, and discipleship. There is no reason for shame in seeking help from others. Our relational God delights in the interdependence of his people. Friends, doesn't that sound a lot like what Jesus has been teaching throughout this passage? In the church, we serve others by looking out for their spiritual good. We serve others by helping them to follow Jesus more closely. That's what discipleship is. It's simply to help one another follow Jesus. We serve others by providing accountability, encouragement, and fellowship to one another. We admit our weakness, that we need this same accountability and and fellowship, that we are not perfect. We point others to the strength that is to be found in Christ. We point others to Christ and his perfections. We admit our own need for Christ and his perfections. So, brothers and sisters, how do we prepare ourselves for trials? Time in God's word, prayer, fellowship among the saints. The spirit works in our heart through these means. Now, I know for some of you, those answers may be disappointing. You may be thinking, that is all you have for me? Could you give me something more? Maybe something a little bit more practical? But brothers and sisters, relying on the Lord is not some mystical spiritual experience. Relying on the Lord is not some mysterious inner feeling. It is not some secret formula that only a few Christians ever discover. We rely on the Lord by using the ordinary means of grace that God has provided to every believer. Prayer, scripture, the fellowship of the church. These are the essentials of the Christian life. This is how the Spirit ordinarily speaks to us and works in our hearts. So we turn. You should turn to these ordinary means of grace in order to better serve others. You should point others to them so that they might be strengthened. You should turn to them yourself to prepare to faithfully follow Jesus through the trials of life. Brothers and sisters, depend on the Lord. Let's pray.